Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Great to be with you again. This is our fourth and final week to be with you this week. And uh, for those of you who are, maybe it's their first time, uh, my name's Larry Kayser, and I'm the marriage pastor here at Fellowship. And this is my bride, my ministry partner, my marriage partner, my friend. And uh, we're just uh, very privileged that we get to do this yes. and do life and ministry together. Yes. You know, last week, we talked about forgiveness as the uh, core part of our message last week. And the passage from Ephesians 4.32 was really our cornerstone. And it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. <clears throat> Do you know, one of the realities about forgiveness is it's a incredibly important way to tend to our covenant commitment. But it also, God asked us to forgive because honestly, that is what God is like. And every time we forgive, the gospel comes to life and we can express a little portion of God's love and character for us when we forgive. So this morning, we're gonna talk about the inseparable connection between trust and emotional intimacy. And that is a journey for every marriage. So Ann and I wanna take just a couple of minutes and share with you a little bit about the way in which we are different emotionally, yes. specifically. Yes. So this all started right from the very beginning because I was born a boy. And I was born a girl. I'm an extrovert. And I'm a mild introvert. I don't really enjoy being with strangers. Yeah, and I love a room full of new people to meet. I cry very easily. I cry only when I watch the movie Rudy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I can do several things at one time. I like to do one thing at a time. I am easily distracted. I can usually maintain my focus. I am a risk taker. Oh, and I prefer safety. I tend to underreact. I tend to overreact. I feel my way through life. I think my way through life. I ask lots of questions. I make statements. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I long to be understood. I want to be right. <laughs> I see today. I see tomorrow. I like pajamas. I like nothing on either one of us. <laughs> True. <laughs> you know, that uh, one little piece there about wanting to be understood and wanting to be right, you know, that has been the source of, yeah. I don't know how many misunderstandings and hurt feelings in our marriage. And it's, it's a personality, history, all that, that we just brought with us. So I want to share with you a quote from one of our favorite marriage books. It's called uh, Lifelong Love by Gary Thomas. And this is the quote. A healthy, life-giving relationship is not something that you find. It is something that you make. And you have to keep on making it just as importantly you can also begin remaking it at any stage. So it doesn't ever have to be beyond our reach. So when we 
think about the idea or the notion of trust, the reality is that trust is probably more the currency of our marriage than even love. Right. Because truthfully, it's pretty hard to love someone if you can't trust them. And so trust is so foundational to building your life together. And it really um, is maybe summarized, the impact of trust is summarized maybe by this question. Are you there for me? Right. Are you there for me? Right. But, but when you believe that your spouse is genuinely committed to your, wel your welfare and that they have a desire what is best for the relationship, you can trust your spouse with your heart, can't you? And that's truly what all of us really desire in our relationships with one another. And I think what Larry and I, as we go forward this morning, we wanna to talk to you about two kinds of trust that must exist in every meaningful relationship. And the first one being this, reliability trust. And this is like the ligaments in your joints, of our joints. And this is where the connecting tissue um, connect with one another. And this is what keeps a relationship flexible and strong. So, but how do we build this reliability trust? Well, reliability trust is built on some very, very practical ways. Like we share consistently and responsibilities of managing the home and caring for our children, following through with commitments, being honest when it is hard, and when you've made a mistake, handles money and partnership, treats each other's bodies with respect, communicates plans, and admits when you are wrong. So you know what these are, and I'm sure as you're sitting out there, you can think of a lot more daily kind of expressions of what kind of trust building um, is required, those essential building blocks within your marriage. But we realize that these are important to build reliability trust, and then what it does, it begins to help us mature in what we're gonna be talking more about in our emotional intimacy with one another. So, yeah, reliability trust is kind of the foundation starting point. But, and yeah, but then it, there's this thing that has to grow in us to really build our marriage, and it's called emotional trust. And that really, at the very most base understanding of that, is that we need to be willing and able to care for our spouse's heart. Hmm. You know, when I went into our marriage, I think I had a really good understanding of reliability trust. Absolutely. It made a lot of sense to me. You know, to be a reliable person, not a perfect person, but somebody that was trustworthy with the everyday stuff of life. That made sense. Like, how do you build a relationship when that's not present, right? You were. It, it's, yeah, it's hard <laughs> to go. But this idea of emotional trust, honestly, even the term, I never thought about it before I got married nor did I ever, that I was aware of, ever watch it or see it or experience it prior to getting married. In the home I grew up in, I can't remember anyone ever really violating my emotional trust because we never talked about it. We never even thought in those terms. People in my house lived in the realm of fact and opinions, and reliability trust was definitely a part of my world. 
So it didn't matter if anybody really listened to anyone or affirmed or attempted to understand what was being really said or what you were feeling. So the home I grew up in left me really poorly equipped <laughs> to recognize emotional distance or the painful drift that it created. So I went into marriage despite, uh, I, I went in there pretty convinced that no matter what struggles or problems we were going to have, it was just going to be fine because I was not going to violate this commitment to being reliable. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be trustworthy. And it, but it's the only kind I brought with me into marriage, at least that I was aware of. And so when emotional trust began to surface, I didn't, I didn't even have the language to identify what in the world was going on. I thought I was still pretty reliable, and yet we were drifting. Yes, yes. And so I experienced that drift in our marriage as well. And you heard in the beginning of our talk there that I can stay in the heart of emotions. And I am very aware of other people's emotions as well as mine. And so I felt this emotional pain and I knew we were definitely, we were not connecting with one another. However, I didn't know how to react to it. I didn't know how to respond. And so what I did and my, my, how I re, um, re responded back to Larry was just to shut down. I didn't communicate with him. And it became painfully, painfully clear to us that early in the season of our marriage, we just related to the same struggles over and over again with the same kind of conflict. And we had this inability not to really be able to learn to listen to one another, not to be able to understand each other. And like Larry said, this created just a slowly creeping distance between the two of us. And so what Larry and I want to do is to share an ordinary time of just the everydayness, the mundane of things in our marriage. And we like to do that because we know as you're all out there, that's where a lot of our conflict, where we don't emotionally connect. And so we hope that you can relate to this. Hey, honey, would you mind helping me with a few things cleaning up before our community group comes up tonight? Tell you, I'm, I'm beat, and you know nobody's coming over here tonight with a white glove to see if we vacuumed and dusted the house. Well, honey, I, I do realize that, but I want you to know, just having the house in order helps me think clearer. I feel like I'm preparing the, for our guests to be able to come, and you know what? Having the house ready is really important to me. You know. Sometimes I, it is so much work to have somebody come over to the house. Honestly, I'd rather not host the group here. Mm. Wow. Well, you know what, honey? I just don't understand why, when I just ask you, why you just can't say, honey, what can I do? How can I help you? I would certainly do that for you. And I don't understand. This is just such a small thing to ask. And honestly, I just don't understand why I can't expect it. Right? Has anybody had any <laughs> conversations like that before? <laughs> you know, I was tired, been working all day, come home to have the group, and I genuinely, oh, really, we got to 
tear the walls apart and get it all cleaned up. I mean, that's the kind of thing. But what I really did, more than anything, is what I said to Anne is I expressed a judgment about her. Like, I actually questioned the motives for why she wanted to clean the house up. Not just because she wanted, but I, I, you know, it's like, it's about you, right? You're worried what people are going to think about you. And so I literally, I, I communicated judgment to her. And I, you know, I couldn't stop long enough to get myself out of the way, honestly, to understand that, you know, for Ian cleaning the house for guests coming over, it, it, you know, for me, it just didn't impact me the same way as it did her. So I don't feel those things. And so Anne, of course, began to make the assumption that I'm just lazy and selfish, which in the moment is probably what I was. <laughs> um, and here's the thing. Anne loves hosting people. We love hosting people. Yeah. But do you know what happened the next time we had people coming over? Yeah. I didn't ask. And you know what? I did all the preparation myself. And you know what? I want you to know those thoughts about Larry, about selfishness and laziness. Yep. That was a part of my thinking in my mind. But you know what? I think what hurt me the most was that Larry's unwillingness to help. And he heard how important it was to me. That was, the, that was the kicker. And in my mind, I felt like us getting the house ready was also like a team effort, as if we are also leading our community group together. So if you go back really quick to what happened the next time we had somebody over, she didn't ask me. So what just happened there is there was this little part of our life emotionally. This was an emotional thing. Right that was violated and we left it untended. Right. And so also in fairness to Larry, remember I always say we got to stay in our own circle and be able to look about what God is trying to do in us. So I had some growing up to do myself. And this could be a, a typical MO, how I would respond to something. In similar situations, I gave myself permission to hold Larry captive by me withdrawing. And oftentimes not telling him the truth that I was hurt because I was not willing to go through the conversation because I was gonna avoid any kind of conflict at any cost. And yes, I did feel misunderstood, but really in my heart, I didn't want to try to understand Larry because in the hardness of my heart, in the depths of what it was, I'm thinking, I am right. I'm right. And so I allowed my heart to go untended likewise in, the, in what would cause us of, of drifting apart from one another. And so this is what Larry and I want you to hear from our story, that we damage the emotional trust between each other simply by not being willing to value or to listen, to hear the heart needs of the other person, so important. And just, just think about how many little, that wasn't a big deal right. that evening, it was a little thing. Think about how many little things that go untended and they just break this little piece, like I'm not gonna ask next time. Yeah, so unforgiveness and destructive self-talk and again, hurt of our emotional intimacy with one another, that, earn, that emotional trust that we have. 
So we want to go in, how do you grow an emotional trust in your relationships? How do we do that? Well, first of all, this begins with a willingness to be emotionally available. Now, I know that's an interesting question. Are you emotionally available? You know, the key word there that I want you to hear is a willingness. It's scary, but are you willing? Because this implies that you have a desire to learn, to grow, and, and, and have a desire to, to change in a direction of that willingness. So, and, and maybe this will even help because you know what? There are different chapters in our marriages. And so after, the, after the being married for Larry and I 43 years, um, Larry and I have found ourselves where we verbally shout out to one another this. Um, I'm committed to grow, committed to grow in the ongoing growing forward in our relationship with one another. I'm not content to stay the same. Yeah, not even Grant with putting this all together tonight or today, yeah. honestly. Yeah, it's been great. So you know what? There's three realms in life and every marriage where, where we have to manage this. And our commitment in all three of these is a place where we can express our willingness to work together. And we can have this emotional connection that we're talking about. And this is what Larry and I call back-to-back, shoulder-to-shoulder, face-to-face. And the first one I'm gonna talk to you about, back-to-back time is the way we spend most of our time together, that back-to-back. This is where the everyday realities of life exist. But this is also where the reliability trust can grow. So who's like, who's picking up the kids? Helping with homework, giving them a bath, getting them ready for bed and tucking them in bed. Who's gonna clean the house, making dinner, washing the dishes, doing the laundry, yes, and folding it? Who is paying the bills? When do you cut the grass, trim the, trim the bushes, and clean the garage? So again, this list, you all have a list out there in your mind right now. You get it, you get it. So, but again, back to back is how we spend a huge part of our life together, just trying to cover all the bases. I was just thinking about the folding the clothes comment. <laughs> when I said fold it. <laughs> yeah, because if I fold the clothes, they usually get folded twice. So anyways, the next one, shoulder to shoulder time. And this is companionship. This is friendship. It's, it's the, you know, it's what attracted us often in the first place. This is when we intentional, intentionally, intentionally, intentionally invest the time doing things together that bring us joy, connection, that, that, craft the common bonds of friendship. And I just, I know that when you've been married for a while and you've had children, you can really lose that part of your life. And the only thing you do is you spend all your time, you know, in the back-to-back realm because you have to. And your friendship has a tendency to just sort of drift away. But it's so important to find time, space, and place for things that you want to do that cultivate your friendship. And that could be so many different things. Um, And then lastly, finally, we need what we call face-to-face time. You know, if I was to characterize what it means, it's not that you have to go do this, 
but this is what you're doing. Yeah, I see you. Yes, I see you. I hear you. I'm looking at you. I want to know how you feel. Yes. I want to know what's going great. I want to know what's hard right now. I mean, and maybe a nice little picture of face-to-face -face time is to, to every now and then do a 10-second long kiss. <laughs> and just because it just makes you stop and give focused attention to you. You see each other. That's a really what you said there. I mean, it's so easy. Again, when you're married for a long time, it's so easy to stop seeing one another. And that's what face-to-face -face time, it brings you to this place, you know, where you have the opportunity to know that one another cares. And so here's what I'd say to you. If you do an hour or two of face-to-face -face time a week, just an hour or two a week, you know, you got 168 hours in a week and you take 50 off for sleep and 50 off for work and maybe 20 hours for other things, you've still got 30, 40 hours a week of essential opportunity to choose what you're going to do with that time. Here's what I would, I would promise you this. One or two hours a week of face-to-face -face time will change the nature and quality of all the rest of the hours. Yeah. I, I'm telling you, it will. And this is, you know, Ann and I's favorite little phrase. We have actually a couple of T-shirts that literally say, be married on purpose. I mean, if you're going to be married, why not? Right. And what is there in your life that you'll ever accomplish that means anything to you that you'll just drift there? We never drift into anything that matters, not ever. And so I just want to encourage you, man, if you get nothing else out of these four weeks, start being married on purpose. So what we'd like to do is we would take the next few minutes and we'd like to talk about a couple of tools that can help you to enrich in this emotional trust with one another. And really, Larry said earlier, where you can, where you can know to know to know, are you there for me? And, and really, that is an important question. Mm. And to be able to look at each other as not as enemies from each other, but to be able to leave and say, you know what? I want to grow in that area. And I want to know where you don't feel like I'm there. It's not where you're pointing a finger at one another, but you're saying, you know what? I'm willing to want to grow in that area. So sensitive responsiveness is very part in this emotional trust. It says James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, a spouse, a spouse can be thoroughly trustworthy and can they be available, but still not respond in a sensitive way. And that's why this is so important. Yeah. So one husband's in my office one day said it this way. I trust my wife with my life. I can count on her. She never wavers. She's home, she's available to me. But when I start to open up, I so often get a critical comment. That won't work. Don't do that. What are you doing that for? Why did you say that? And of course, at that point, I just stop. Right, right. and so to be sensitively responsive means this. You receive your spouse's inner thoughts, their most thoughts, their feelings, their needs, and their desires readily without judgment. 
That is huge, without judgment. And likewise, your spouse responds to you in a way that helps you feel understood, validated, and cared for. Yeah, it's like this the work of building a relationship. It really is. You know, and healthy relationships absolutely require the care, attention, and management of hurt feelings. They, they just do. You know, it's and really important to recognize sometimes as you get to know each other, that there are times when past vulnerabilities are being triggered in your spouse. And you can learn to recognize those things. You really can. And it often happens because we never handled, when, it, when, it, uh, when the violation happened, we never handled it. We just kind of let it go. And then all of a sudden, we're in this place again where there's an angry moment or a withdrawal moment or a silent moment. And all that's happened is something's got triggered that often is unresolved from a week ago, a month ago, or six months ago. So if you find yourself in really harmful patterns where you get in the same arguments over and over again, and they keep bringing you to this place where you just feel stuck, what I want to just, this is what I want to encourage you to do, whether it's to go see a counselor together, whether it's to um, check into our marriage ministry and look for a marriage mentor, whether it might be to read a book together or maybe, you know, commit to, yeah, trusted friend to enroll in our re-engaged class that starts in January and and jump into that. But what what we need to do when we get in these places where we're stuck is we need to do something to disrupt our habits. Shake it up. Yeah, make different choices. Disrupt something. Don't just let the habit rule your life. And never stop asking yourself this question. Have you ever trusted God to change you? I know I asked that a couple of weeks ago. I I cannot express to you how profoundly God has changed my life as a result of being a husband. I I know I've said this before, but even in this past year, Sometimes I sit at the beginning of the year and just say, Lord, what is there something in my marriage this year that I, you would put, bring to my attention or focus my heart around? And I'm, t- I'm just telling you, God always finds a way to answer that. Whether it's in the next sermon I hear or something on the radio or something I read in the scriptures that day or you know, just something that gets prompted in a prayer time. And last year, you know, God clearly gave me, he said, I want you to, Focus this year on curiosity, kindness, empathy, and understanding. And all four, I could have grabbed any one of those for the year. But I I, I just want to tell you that when you ask God, he'll respond. And when Larry shared that with with me, (coughs) it was such a profound moment. And talk about a place where emotionally trust and emotional intimacy grew. I mean, wow, that, that is love. So how do we grow in our ability to respond in a sensitive way? Well, we, to, you know, it's a commitment to learn, right? So be willing to take the time to clarify what you are hearing. You know, Proverbs 24, 3 there says, a wisdom is, uh, by wisdom, a house is built And by understanding, it is established. That word understanding, it simply means that you are taking the time to grasp what you're experiencing. 
to grasp who your partner is, what their needs are, to understand. And one of the best ways to begin to do that is to have this commitment to understand what they're trying to say. <laughs> so ask curious questions. And again, I, I grew up in a home where that never happened. And so to ask a curious question rather than formulate my opinion or my next sentence while Anne was talking has been a lifelong journey for me. To, but to say, can you just simply, can you tell me more? What would be most helpful to you right now? Do you want me just to listen? Are you hoping for some input to, to solve the issue? How did it make you feel when I just said that? Mm. You know, what those things have the potential to do is to slow down my response, our response, and really, honestly, seek to clarify what in the world I'm actually hearing and resist the urge to overreact, to fix the other person, or, you know, to express my opinion. Curious questions seek to create empathy. In other words, to put yourself in your spouse's shoes. And the things that stop us from doing it, one, it's just old habits, right? So curious questions are habit busters for a lot of us, for me, for sure. Sometimes it's because we've had so much unresolved stuff that we mistrust our spouse's intentions or Sometimes we're mind reading and attributing their bad motives to what they're doing before we, they get a chance to even try to listen or understand it. And this last thing for me is another place to, to go to God. When I, when I got married in particular, it took me a few years to figure this out. But I will tell you, I walked into marriage without the humility to listen. Listening, really listening is a humble thing to do. And that's why it's probably still the challenge that it is today. But, you know, and that's a heart thing, not a skill thing. The skills come after the heart. And honey, there's growth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the goal in our communication, which you heard Larry say so beautifully and tried to say to you all, it is mutual understanding to have mutual understanding. So we begin with curious questions and then we try to practice reflective listening. Listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth, Proverbs 7:24 says. So reflective listening stops you from the urge to simply respond, like Larry said, with an opinion or, or thoughts. Practice trying to really understand and restate what you think your partner has said to you. And I know even as we, we talk about these tools, it can kind of sound um, mechanical. And it will feel mechanical in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But to stop a habit of what you have done over and over, it, and it's an unnatural thing, you just have to look at each other and say, you know what, I wanna do a better job of being able to say, I'm gonna, when you stop, I'm gonna restate something that you've said. And then I want you to be able to say, is that what you meant that you meant yeah. to say? And as weird as it might feel, and it can feel weird, how's what you've been doing been working? Yeah. Right? I mean, exactly. disrupt it. Yeah. So again, so, and then try to use I statements that help identify how you are feeling. Pointing, when you use you fingers, you, I mean, you words, it feels like your finger is 
poking into someone's chest. And we don't want that person to feel that way. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it's a skill to develop to learn how to listen to understand mm -hmm. and not listen to reply. Because, you know, for me, you know, when I came into marriage, listening to understand or understanding meant that I'm going to work really hard to make sure that Ann understood me. That's just what I came with. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a work of God's spirit in us, you know, to say, I want that to change. So Larry and I um, have another story to share with you. Um, several years ago, I was going to have a serious surgery to remove a bunion on my right foot. And that meant that I was gonna be basically immobilized upstairs for two weeks. It meant crawling around on, on you know, everywhere for about a week, uh, crab crawling. And then it was gonna be moving to a walker for another week. And then I had to wear a boot with crutches for another month. And then the total, I wasn't gonna be able to have like physically any kind of pressure on that foot for about eight weeks. So as the surgery was coming closer, I was having some anxiety with, with Larry because I was afraid that he was not gonna take care of me the way that I thought that I needed to be taken care of. And so we had to have a delicate conversation because you, um, if you remember Larry, when he gets sick, he likes to be left alone. <laughs> he doesn't want to be bothered. So here we are. <laughs> Anne had good reason to be wondering about this. <laughs> so yes. our conversation went something like this. Honey, I need to share something with you that is really on my mind as we get closer to the surgery. Okay, tell me what you want to talk about. <laughs> well, Let's... I want you to know that I'm concerned while after the surgery, I'm up in bed and I am so afraid that I'm gonna be not able, I'm not gonna be able to walk. I'm gonna need water, I'm gonna need food. I want conversation. And I'm just afraid that, you know, how you like to be taken care of and being left alone, that is not how I wanna be taken care of. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm gonna be alone and feeling sick all at the same time. Well, it kind of scares me too, as I, you know, I'm gonna be, I know I'm gonna be really busy. I'm gonna have a lot of balls to juggle around. You know, I, I know one thing I could do is I could probably call some of your girlfriends and make a schedule up so Sonny could be here with you. So about this point in time, as I am acutely reading her face, <laughs> which, you know, I could see that I, I wasn't understanding exactly her concern here. And so I, I thought, you know, I need to stop right what I'm doing yes. and simply say, wait a minute. I, want, I need to work harder at understanding what's behind that. Yes. And so I literally attempted to sort of restated to her. I said, so, all right, so what you're saying to me is that you're thinking you're going to be up here in this bedroom all by yourself, and I'm going to be kind of nowhere to be found, and that makes you fearful about having your needs met and being taken care of. Yes, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. It felt really silly to me in a way to restate that, but what it did is it stopped the conversation and changed its direction. It did. Oh, yeah, immediately. Yeah. And then what did you proceed to say to me? Well, and before we got all done, well, the asking you the questions, I could see changed your spirit. Oh, absolutely. So you seemed much more like you drew some confidence oh, from me asking. Absolutely. And, you know, and then I finally said to her, I said, I, I'm 
you wait and see. I'm going to, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do more than you can imagine. I'm going to take care of you like yes. I never have before. Yes. Yeah, so I just want to repeat the last one. Larry said when he asked me a question, he took the time to ask. That is huge. So what I did first was try to solve the problem that was making me very uncomfortable. Right. Yes, and then like you said, honey, ha asking the questions for me, what do I need? What would that look like? It gave me the confidence in knowing that Larry saw me, he heard me, he's trying to understand me, and he rose up to the occasion. Yeah. Barb, you are wonderful. <laughs> so the goal is listening to gain understanding, not agreement, to understand what the other person's thinking and feeling. And here's some, I, I just want, I want everybody to let this next sentence just sink in a little. Your spouse becomes vulnerable to anyone who seeks to understand them. Mm -hmm. Your spouse will become vulnerable to anyone who seeks to understand them. And who's that need to be? It needs to be you. So the most important marriage skill we can work on and develop, honestly, is listening to your partner in a way that they cannot possibly doubt mm -hmm. that you love them. Yeah. It's an issue of our heart, guys, women. So <laughs> everything that we're talking about this morning and really this entire series leads us back to the core command and truth about marriage. And that is God was very committed to our understanding what oneness or unity looks like and how that reflects the nature of who God is. And here's just a truth about marriage. Marriage is the only relationship there is that if one of you wins, you both lose. Mm -hmm. And if, if you're sitting there this morning and, and you guys, you know, there's a wall between you, you know exactly what I mean when I say that. If one of you wins, you both lose. So pursuing a more intimate union means wrestling with the radical notion of how do two people wrestle their way to unity? Not just like unity overall, but unity from sometimes day to day and thing to thing. You know, sometimes that pursuit will go against every selfish fiber of our being. And we need the help of God's spirit to overcome. We want the benefits of being known and loved, but we hate the process of dying to ourselves that it takes to get there sometimes. So becoming one with your spouse can mean I care as much about my spouse, Anne's problems, mm -hmm. as I do my own. Yes, and I cherish Larry's health and well-being and, and his pleasure as much as I cherish mine. Mm -hmm. My spouse is not a servant to be used, but she's part of me and I am part of her. Yes, and if I'm reckless with my wallet, I put both of us in financial um, insecurity, a great risk. If I poison my mind with lust, I poison our marriage bed. 
I do. You know, there's nothing that we can do in our life, ultimately, will not impact our marriage. There's an old book um, by a guy named Mike Mason called The Mystery of Marriage. And in there, he describes this picture of, of, of a couple planting an oak tree in the middle of their living room. And as that oak tree grows, as the marriage grows, it becomes very obvious to them that they can never walk through that living room ever without regarding or taking into account the presence of that oak tree. Mm -hmm. And there are so many things in us that want to sometimes do our own thing, make our own choices, rather than having to submit and surrender those things to the commitment we made towards the pursuit of lifelong unity. Mm -hmm. And to do that requires a kind of surrender and spiritual help that was there to change who we are. You know, the last four weeks of our, little, our series here, you know, we called this the gospel-centered marriage because we we're, we're not up here so people have happier marriages or easier marriages. That's not why we're up here. In Christ, our marriage means something different than it means out in the rest of the culture. Our marriage is a picture of the covenant love that God has expressed to you and I through the cross of Christ and the resurrection. And so our covenant love is a calling to this big story that's designed to be a, a significant part of the way God would transform our character, our heart, and teach us to love one another, to teach us to love like Jesus loves, to forgive like Jesus forgives. So I don't know what marriage means out in the culture, but we have the privilege of knowing what marriage is supposed to mean, what it's about. And it is this beautifully large story to make us like Christ. That's why we did it. That's why it's called gospel-centered marriage. And I just want to encourage you, if you are trying to manage your way through marriage and you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus, not only are you missing the power that the Spirit can bring, but you've lived your marriage without the meaning that it possesses and then wants to give away to us. The power. Yes. Yeah. So, in the last prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, that he prayed over his disciples before he began, literally before he began to walk into the Garden of Gethsemane to start the events that would lead to the crucifixion, Jesus knew that the brokenness of the world would make it painfully difficult for his people to walk in unity so as he nears the end of this long prayer in John 17, he says these words. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you send me, that you've sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He's about to go to the cross and the last thing he's praying for with those disciples 
is unity. And there's only really two places where unity in the Christian world is really a supernatural thing. And the very first one in the Bible is a husband and wife. Before the nation of Israel came along, before there was a church, before there was a temple, before there was any of those things, there was a husband and a wife who were reflecting the image and nature of God. And then the church came along as the larger expression yet of unity. So imagine both of those things are flooded with meaning about the way God is, what God values and what he expresses through us. So there's this enemy, this Satan, this enemy of God who would do everything in his possible to destroy those two beautiful, powerfully important expressions of oneness. And the first one is right in our home, right in our living room between a husband and a wife. So why don't you pick up your communion elements? And it's a reminder. It is a reminder that Jesus died so the spirit could come and give us the power to restore us to learn to walk in humility, to extend grace and places of forgiveness in our relationships and to reflect the unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. John 13, 34 through five says, and this is at the final meal with his disciples. Jesus said these words, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And you also to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples. And if you have love for one another, so let's take the bread right now and ponder again what it means to love one another and what would it mean for the world to know. Let's take the bread. So as you take the cup, we are, every time we do this, we are to remember, to remember that the blood was shed for forgiveness of sins. And one of the most profound places that forgiveness starts in our life on earth, if we are married, is one to another in our covenant commitment to each other. So let's take the cup in remembrance of the shed blood of Jesus for our forgiveness. prayer. Oh, Father, our relationships matter, and they matter to you. Would you help us find the courage and humility to assume a posture of growth and change? Would you help us to see that our marriage was intended to shape our character and to teach us to love an imperfect person with a lifelong commitment, just the way you love us. So give us the courage to see our relationships through these purposes. 